just because uh, is to balance out uh, the book of Jonah. When Jonah and Nahum, if you guys remember, is almost like they're um, complementary books. Both deals with the same uh, city, the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the Syrian Empire. And Jonah came 100 years before the book of Nahum, which shows that God shows grace. That even uh, people that are very violent, uh, very sinful, if they repent, does God show grace? Yes, okay? But a hundred years later, you see the pride of Assyria has grown, okay? Where, where it's almost to the point where during the records of that time, it seems like there's no, any signs at all of any influence of them really loving or following God or any of that, things of that nature. Where everything is very pagan, that is worshiping polytheistic many gods. But also as well, another aspect is also um, their celebration and idolizing of violence, Okay, and conquests and wealth and everything else. So God gives these um, message. And when we began this earlier um, this year, I felt like okay, maybe some people might not really like this military analogy, or it seems like it's irrelevant. Like why would you know uh, it's far out of reach? But I think also in light of the last three weeks of even with, with war and, and things of that nature, right? And we're here. I think in some sense is relevant. Okay, um, is relevant. Um, in the sense that we could see in some ways relevant. What I mean by relevant is that we could identify with a little bit more uh, with that. Okay, so in light of this today, when we look at is we're looking at Nahum chapter three, and where we see God's uh, I title today's message is funeral song for uh, Nineveh. Okay, funeral song for Nineveh. Um, what we actually see today is actually two predictions, uh, two groups of predictions. Okay. And we're going to see this today as our purpose is two groups of prediction of a serious downfall so that we, again, would continuously trust in the authority of God, okay, with the authority of God. Um, so these two uh, predictions that I have, you're taking notes, these two points, two prediction is number one, God predicts a serious weakened economy, okay? God predicts a serious weakened economy. This is in verses 15, second half, or verse 15b. To verse 17 okay verses 15b to verse 17 and then point number two is god predicts a serious king's demise okay god predicts a serious king's demise this is in verses 18 to 19 okay so these are going to be our two point and just um by whenever we read the bible i always think it's important to put things in context Okay, um, so I want to encourage you guys to, I know like some of you guys are transitionary, going different places. I always want to encourage you guys when you guys look for a church to always look. Um, I think sometimes people can look for various things, whether or not people are nice and cool and, and things of that nature. And and while you do want to look for a church that's loving, um, don't forget you want to look at a church that's about God's word. Um, you know, I've known our church that I've been in right now for over 20 years. I've not been a pastor for 20 years, but I've known the church for 22 years or so. Um, I would say that our church is not always as loving, um, but I've also seen a church, if it puts God's word church first, then the word of God will change people to be more loving, okay, um, with that. So I do think when you guys look for a church, to look for a church, I stress God's word is important. And why do we trust God's word is important? Because it's authoritative. And how do we know it's authoritative? One of the ways we know is because of the many prophecies in scripture, Okay, so when we look at the Bible and passage here in context, Nahum 3 um, gives us in verses 1 to 7, why is God going to judge Nineveh in verses 1 to 7? Then he gives three different taunting. Um, first, God taunt them by saying, hey, do you think you're better than your rival city of, the, uh, of Thebes? If you guys remember that, that's the Egyptian capital. Okay, um, that's in verses 8 to 11. 
Then we saw last week um, the taunt is a military taunt. Saying, hey, you guys worship your military. And here God is saying in verses 12 to 15, hey, you know what? God is taunting them and saying they're going to be weakened and their military is going to even be cowardly even. Okay. Then today we're going to see in verses 15 to 16, a third taunt where God is taunting them and saying, hey, your economy, you think you're so strong economically, but you know what? You guys will be weakened economically also as well. And then finally, there's going to be a funeral song of what we call a dirge. Okay. In verses um, 18 and 19. Okay. So let's look at point number one. God predicts a serious weakened economy. Okay. God predicts a serious weakened economy. And economy is what? Dealing with things with commerce and trade. Okay. They're commercial um, economic goods. You see that God is going to say in verses 15b to 17 where it's weakened. Let me read verses 15b to 17 again. Uh, I use NASB. Okay. Uh, in the NASB version, it says this. Multiply yourself like the creeping locusts. Multiply yourself like the migratory uh, locusts. Verse 16. You have made your, uh, your traders more numerous than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust shed its skin and flies away. Verse 17. Your courtiers are like migratory locusts. Your officials are like swarms of locusts. Settling in the uh, stone shelter on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. And the places where they are is not known okay so we read in this passage here um is is another taunt and this one is focusing on the economy okay um and even when we think about for um again i'm using this just because it's something we kind of know a little bit with the news um remember what happened when um when russia and putin decide to attack ukraine what was the world's response was not militarily first or even military. What did the world do right away first? They decided to do sanctions. Sanctions, okay? Yeah, hit their economy, okay? So when we see here, you, I think when we see this, I think we kind of see maybe appreciate a little bit more insight of just contemporary news of how economy relates to war, okay? In a sense that in order to have a big army, you need to be able to not only have have all these men eat food and have weapons and have good kind of weapons, but you also need the logistics of all of that, right? So. Um, you need a strong economy to have a strong what army and vice versa to support their economy the Syrian economy they also needed a strong army so it's a mutual relationship okay um, the way they did economics back then was very different than today uh, with this because when international trade like for instance today someone could be um, an ordinary person if you have the money and the capital or you could convince other people um, to give you money and capital then you could go and start a business or trade in our country and then fill out certain forms in other countries where there could be ordinary people do international trade. Um, uh, all things being constant, I also know, realize, of course, there's some limitation whether or not you have the capital ahead of time, right, to do that. Or the persuasiveness to in, encourage others to also invest in what you're doing. But nevertheless, back then in trade of in 700 BC, it was not ordinary individuals that say, hey, I want to make business. It often involves government officials, okay? So it's often involved government officials. So one of the ways Syria became very rich back then is two ways, or actually three ways. Number one is they would conquer enemies. When they conquer enemies with their military, their military would pillage everything, would plunder, would take all these goods, okay? So that's one way they would have economic growth as a as a nation 
and especially their capital of Assyria, which is Nineveh, would profit from that because they'll bring all the spoils of war. Second thing, the area they conquered, the following year they would require them to pay a very heavy tribute, like a very heavy version of tax. Okay, and they have to bring it to the city of Nineveh and, and give all their wealth, right? Give all their best. to them. So that's the second revenue. And the third is they would actually do trade with those certain uh, border areas um, where beyond their borders they would do business and they'll do trade. For instance, they would treat Egypt as equals. Um, but when they do trade, they would not say, let's just say you're an ordinary citizen. You cannot just walk to Egypt to do trade. It's often you... Um, the people that do business are actually government officials that sent specifically for the purpose of trade. So they would have um, ambassadors, but even then their ambassador have all these trade officials that would agree ahead of time and say, hey, we will give this or that. And then they'll send a lot of goods, like wholesale. So it's not like, don't think of a small little trade, okay? So in verses 15 to uh, 17, you see that God is going to taunt the economy of Assyria. In other words, what God is doing by attacking the economy is he's attacking almost, if you will, the economic engine, right, of for war, okay? So verses 15 to 17, it says, um, notice uh, this part could be breaking up into three more parts, okay? Uh, where you see here is, you're going to see there's an ironic command in verses 15b, the second half. And then you're going to see two description of Nineveh's decrease and their decrease of economic power is going to be involving not so much the metrics of what is it they sell or what is it they have new materials but it's more of the officials that make the trade economic uh, um, transaction possible okay so it's saying hey this class of people that's involved with economic trade they're going to be decreasing they're going to be running away they're not going to be under the Syrian empire anymore they're going to disappear even okay um, so let's look at this first with the ironic command. And remember we've seen this. Um, this is God taunting with a bit of sarcasm where God would tell Assyria to, and Nineveh to do certain things. But when you think about what God's telling them to do, it's actually futile. It's pointless. Okay. And the result is going to be the exact opposite. Notice the command. It says is multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the migratory locust. Okay. So there's two commands that's repeated here and that's to multiply. By the way, if you guys remember, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, locusts eat a lot, okay? Locusts eat a lot. Locusts could eat a day um, the equivalent of the weight of their own size, okay? So that, that's incredible, right? Like we, we don't, you and I, we don't eat that much, right? In terms of like the proportion of our size. We don't eat like, you know, if we eat a 12-pound steak, man, that's already like super heavy, right? Um, but man, for locusts, they eat a lot. They would eat about their size, okay? So when it says multiply, um, He's saying to them, hey, why don't you increase? And, 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 um, and the Assyrians would love to increase their size everywhere in the empire. But God's word is saying, telling them, okay, go ahead and multiply. And he uses, uh, Nahum uses two different words for locusts. I know in our English, it just says locusts. But in, in the Hebrew, there's actually two different words for locusts. Okay. I want to look at both to see what we, you know, what maybe he's trying to say, or at least a shade of color or appreciation of what he's trying to say with this mockery. Okay, the first one is creeping locust. Um, by the way, it's only one word in Hebrew. Is just one one word. It's not like there's a word creeping and locust. Our English word we do this in the NASB or some of your other version. Hannah, could you quiet down? Um, the reason why it does that is to emphasize it's a different kind of word. Or this one is describing um, 
of locusts that's just going and usually a lot of them and going elsewhere and this word is actually not as common okay not as commonly as the second word the second go ahead Okay. Okay. Cool. Okay. That's neat that they have that. Okay. So, um, uh, so yeah, there's two different terms. Okay. The second one is migratory. You see, is is what? So the first one is emphasizing often that there's just a lot of lot of them, a lot of these, right? Um, but the second one are locusts that goes much more faster. That's why you see it says migratory locusts, and this is the more common term. Okay, this is the most common term. Um, why is he saying this? Why is he using two different terms? Is I think he's trying to say, hey, you, I'm going to compare you, Nineveh, to locusts. Um, and there's already a comparison earlier. If you guys remember last week, we talked about locusts is dis- very destructive, right? Um, very destructive. There was a, I think there was a, in the early part of the 1900s, there was actually a locust in North Africa, the Sahara area, where it was the size, the, it was the size of the United States traveling in the 1900s. So you could, but then... As destructive as it is, the other thing about locusts we need to realize is also they're very, they don't live that long, okay? They don't live that long. It's very destructive, but also they don't really live that long also as well. They run out of food to eat, okay? Uh, and there's certain seasons where, where it, they just die. And when they die, they're just massively all over, okay? So God's word, Nahum now, is using the second imagery characteristics of, of locusts. It's not just only destructive, but it disappears, right? Like when it when they start dying, they die. They don't live long. And God, God is gracious. Could you imagine locusts if they the whole swarms if they live like let's just say thirty years? I mean, they're gonna eat up everything. We we are gonna be suffering, right? So by God's grace, right? They don't live that long. So when God says multiply yourself, notice now it's gonna say you're gonna be like the locusts. And in what ways that you don't live really that long, okay? That this is not going to be, you're not going to be uh, forever. You're going to be very temporary, okay? Um, and by the way, th- why this is important is this. Um, the reason why it's important is I actually think you might say, okay, is is he just arbitrarily talking about locusts? The reason I would say, if you remember, even Nahum 2, when we looked at um, Nahum where God is saying he's going to judge him like lions, all those lions and lionettes and baby lions and teenage lions, they're all going to be killed. The, all of that is not because Nahum just says it out of nowhere. He's using something that Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, liked to use to brag. So there's something similar also as well. God, um, Nineveh not just only likes to brag of themselves, compare themselves with um, with lions, but he uses another symbol here also as well that the Nineveh, Ninevites like to use, where they often, their kings of Assyrian Empire like to brag of themselves, compare themselves as what? As grasshoppers, as locusts. And God is turning that around on their own head and using that as an indictment, okay? Let me give an example um, just to show you. Um, we do have, this is outside the Bible, okay? Um, there are kings in Assyria um, that would use their term to say, com- to describe their themselves and the empire and their armies like that of locusts, okay? Um, there's one named Sargon the second, okay? He's this is again outside the Bible, okay? Uh, with their writing inscription that we see, um, he lives around 721 BC to 705 uh, BC. Correction, 
not live. That's when he ruled. Okay, that's when he ruled. And this is what he says, comparing, talking about himself. He says, "In the anger of my heart, I overran these lands like a swarm of locusts." So they like to brag about themselves that they're like what their armies and what they do. They're like locusts. Okay, so that's what Sargon II. After Sargon II reigned, um, he his reign ended in seven hundred five. The next king was a guy named Sennacherib, which we we see the Bible mention. You guys remember? If you guys remember way back when we began in Nahum one. We know that Sennacherib in First Kings, he's the king that went, surrounded Judah. He's, he, he was going to conquer them in God. And he even sent messenger to say, hey, give up. Your God's not going to do anything. None of the gods of all these lands have been able to defeat me. So you might as well just surrender. But then when he went, Sennacherib's army, God just brought an angel of death. And all these soldiers died. And he just went back. And we know outside the Bible, he also just said, oh, I, may, I, just, surrounded, um, I just surrounded Hezekiah. But later on, I just moved away. Okay, and I just made him sing like a songbird in his cage. But that shows Bible prophecy is true, that he did not uh, conquer uh, Judah. Okay, so Sennacherib reigned from 704 to 681 BC. And he compared himself, he, he says of his military advance, he calls it that this is like the onslet, on, onset of the locust swarm of springtime. Okay, so again, I'm bringing these two kings up with two uh, quotes outside the Bible to show you that they like to brag about the armies like a bunch of locusts that they advance and it's indestructible. No one could stop them, right? When it comes over, it's going to make night time of, out of the day because of just the sheer numbers of it. And now God uses the same analogy and says, hey, but don't forget one thing about what? One thing about locusts, it is, it is what? They don't live forever. It is very temporary. And God uses this analogy. Notice here, he says, when he says multiply all this, notice now he's going to compare them. Though they multiply, nevertheless, multiply increases but they, they might try to increase but they're actually going to end up decreasing and you see just like how it has two commands of multiply in verses 15 then in verses 16 and 17 there's going to be two description of their decrease okay so god almost do this almost like a poetic justice right increase 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 stated twice but now it's giving two description in two verses right verses 16 and 17 uh, of two different ways that they're going to decrease, involving two different class of people in their society. The first one in verse 16 is to show that their traitors will go away. That their traitors will go away. What do you mean by traitors? Is uh, not T R A I T O R S, okay? But traitors instead of, uh, in the sense of a uh, T R A D E R, okay? Those that involve with trade and commerce, okay? Their traitors will go away. Verse 16. Um, Rebecca, could you come up and read for us as a happy, motivated reader? Read Nahum chapter 3, verse 16. Nahum 3, 16. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Okay, thank you so much. Okay. So in comparing them as locusts, he's turning them around by saying, Hey, you know what? You guys won't have lived forever. Who specifically won't be around forever? He's saying they're traitors, those that are involved with commerce. Now, remember, like I said, those people involved with commerce back then were not ordinary people, citizens that just went to do business, okay? It's not an Elon Musk, you know, a guy from somewhere and just, no, you have to be connected with government to be involved with international trade, okay? I think the model is, if you, if you will, is how, maybe the better model of how, you know how um, China, once they open door, the people that first got really rich were not ordinary people, were what? 
people that were already connected to government. Same thing like Russia when they opened up in ninety. 89, you know, with, or pre-89, actually. It's really the government official that was involved with business. So so now today, even all the, a lot of the rich tycoons are government-connected in order for them. So it's not capitalism in the true essence. It's actually a more corporatism. It's Actually, it's the technical definition of fascism, where it's the government and business joint hand together to do that. So corporatism, by the way, is not the same thing as capitalism, which is the idea of exchange of goods uh, and services um, without coercion, okay? But going back on, we see here um, traders will will go away, okay? Um, and it's being compared to that, um, that though they're numerous, I like how it shows before and after judgment. Before judgment, it says th their traders are numerous than the stars of heaven, okay? It's almost echoing Genesis 12, remember earlier, that God t told um, Abraham, that your descendants will be like the stars of heaven. Notice, by the way, God loves to use analogy from Scripture in ways that the Jews will use. Oh, I can kind of relate to this. We've seen this other parts in the Bible. Oh, this is so similar. But it is not similar because the consequence after judgment is different. It's the opposite. Where after judgment says, the creeping locust shall shed its wing and fly away. Okay? It's showing that, hey, it's just moving on. And what it's left over is just a bunch of remnants of waste, okay, that they're now have gone away. I want to make this observation when you look at this passage. Does it say the the traitors will die? Does it say that? If we pay attention very carefully, it does not say that. It actually says they escape. Remember that point, because that will come back again, okay? But now let's look at the next class of individuals, or or or, or, or correction, next class of segment of Nineveh society. Okay, look at verse 17. Now we see even political officials will go away. Even political officials will go away. Okay, they're only temporary. These, um, these two groups are now departing from Nineveh. Okay, Abigail, could you come up for us and read for us in happy, motivated, big girl voice? Read us verse 17. Okay, Nahum 3.17. You want to read your version, New King James? Okay, we could do that. Okay, you want to come up and read? Your commanders are like swarming locusts, and your captains are like grasshoppers. When the camp in the hedges, which camp in the hedges on a cold day, but when the sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, um, in this passage here, it's now again still comparing the political officials. You probably heard, um, even when you were reading New King James, I realized. The term is a little different, the wording, than the New American Standard Bible, okay? There's two uh, offices, political offices, that are mentioned, two types. Um, the first one, uh, I actually think, uh, I know you you read it, it was what, it says commander? Is that what it says? Yeah. Okay, it says commander, right? You didn't read it as courteous? Okay, so I'm trusting you with your reading ability, okay? So um, I actually think the best way to translate that is more courteous, in a sense of messengers, like official messenger or kings. Back then, there was no emails. There's no diplomatic um, uh, communication cables. So the way people communicate is you would send courtiers. Okay, and those guys would have to be shown certain respect because it's an important office that fulfills with that. So I think that's the first office. And the same here, your courtiers are like migratory locusts. It's like, hey, it's like going everywhere, okay? And the second one, again, is like the swarm of locusts, okay, is the officials. This one is actually a more rare term. 
And it, it is actually an Assyrian loan term. Okay, so it's actually a word that Bible commentators commentators believe it's actually from Assyrian language. Okay, um, so it doesn't appear that much uh, in the Bible. But outside the Bible, this term is referencing um, those who are actually scribes, those that take med uh, uh, official notes um, for military records and economic records. Okay. Um, so these are like government bureaucrats, so to speak, okay, that's taking all these, generate all these documents or tablets more likely, right, um, keeping official records. And guess what? When it's saying all these individuals, they're like locusts, how? That they're destructive? No, in the sense that they go away, okay, so that they're going to move away. Notice it says in the, when it's cold, they might be congregating together, right? But when the sun rises, what do they do when it's daytime? They're going to go away, right? They're going to flee and it's saying here the same thing that these officials are now fleeing. And it also makes this point of a little bit additional insult. Not just only that they will go away. Notice it says, where they go, it's not known. Which for the king of Assyria, when you send your courtiers, right? Or couriers, you know where they're exactly going. You know where your officials are at all times. Because they, you don't want any of them to what? To remove you, okay? To remove you. Because you want to know where they're at, okay? If I could just give an, a little bit of analogy of today's. I don't know if you guys notice when you see Putin speak for the last two months. Um, you could go on YouTube to see videos and give speech. Let me ask you guys this question. When you see him speak on video, is he pretty close to the camera? Is he pretty close to his um, officials? Or does it look like he's pretty far away? Anyone notice? He's pretty far away most of the time. The, the yeah, it's pretty far away. I mean, it's like... Pretty. I mean, I think he's getting kind of nervous. By the way, I, I personally think Putin keeps tracks of days. Like, dates and anniversaries are very important. If you guys know today, it's March 15th, the Ides of March, which probably is already over for him. And Ides of March, I imagine he probably kept extra distance because Ides of March, if you guys know history, is the day when Julius Caesar was, was stabbed, right? Was was killed by all these people plotting against him, okay? Um, and, you know, the famous one is the guy that he's raising up to be the one... Um, even stabbed him and say, "Oh no, yeah, oh no, you too, uh, Brutus, right?" But that's another sermon another time. But bring this was to say is this: officials, kings, are always afraid of being overthrown with the Syrians, and and so they even have incentives to know where their um, officials are at at all times, and also their couriers are doing their bidding, and they would know. And to add insult to this, in verse seventeen, is saying, "Hey, where they're going, they do. There's not even known." which goes against the Assyrian desire for tyrannical control. So you see here that the political officials are going away on their own power, not according to the volition of what the king's desire and wishes are. So you see here God's judgment on the political class and also the economic um, wealthy class of the Assyrian empire. Okay, But I want to make this observation again. Let me ask you guys even this question in verse 17. With the political class being compared as locusts, does it mention that they are destroyed? No. Okay. And you know what's profound with this observation? This is where why we pay attention to Scripture, the attention to details matter. Because when we read all the other parts, we see God destroy those who are military officials. Yes. Do we see Him destroying armies and soldiers? Yes. But here I actually think in the midst of God's judgment, God actually gave mercy. He did not say, oh, you would all be wiped out. By the way, there's other passages in other cities and other empires. God says he will wipe them out and destroy to in totality. And God could do this because he's, he's God, right? Um, by the way, none of us could say, God, you have to give me grace and mercy. Because the definition of mercy and grace is undeserved. 
So he could have judged and destroyed Assyria. But I actually think in this moment, even in the midst of judgment, this is why attention to details matter. He describes these people in Nineveh fleeing and escaping. And I think he's saying here that he's not going to destroy all Assyrian people, that there's some he would allow to escape. So what is the application of this? I think the application of this, first and foremost, number one, is to realize when God judges, God, when he, whatever he says, it will happen. So we need to be what? We need to actually have a sober, loving fear. A key word is loving fear of God, where you need to respect God, but also out of love, realize, hey, whatever he says, he will do, and you submit lovingly towards him. Okay? And let that motivation not be driven by um, ir- irrational fear, but out of love. But still, there's a respectful fear, do we not? Um, my dad is, I think right now, um, I'm more physically stronger than my dad. But do I respect my dad? Yeah. Would I ever strike my dad? No, right? I think, by the way, when my dad was younger, he was far more stronger than I ever was, right? Even though I think he was much more skinnier. Um, you know, of all his life experience, of all the trials and tribulations he's gone through. But nevertheless, I have a respectful fear of him. Does that make sense? So same thing, we need to have a respectful fear of God. So that's the first application. I think the second application is this. Um, second application is this. When you look around the world, there are evil people in, in, in countries, different countries, right? By the way, in every country, there's always now in our world today a class of people that might not even identify themselves as closest to their own citizen first. They might identify more of an idea of a global empire or global agenda, right? Where they might even say they might be super wealthy. They feel like, oh, I could relate more to the super rich in England or super rich in in France, much more, and they talk about food and taste and, and their way of mode of transportation is not something that their average person, citizen in their country might relate to. And there is that class. And those individuals might be those that look down upon everyone else and think they are smart enough to control other people. And I think we've seen a little bit of that. I remember a few weeks ago when I showed a video from these forums. And I think this passage is um, relevant for them too. Let them not be, be comforted for all of us that they could pawn and scheme and do all these things and yet guess what god is the one that will frustrate their empire don't ever think people could be just because they're so rich that they could control everything god has a way of frustrating all these this is why even in light of everything with conspiracy theory i also think as christians we have to be very careful even with the things that are true is realize god has a way of always frustrating the evil plans of the wicked does that does that mean that do never do evil things? and uh, Yes, they do. But in the end, God will in the end frustrate and judge. And be comforted by that. Don't forget the book of Nahum. The word Nahum means what? God comforts. God comforts us uh, by even with people that are more powerful economically, whatever else. When they were all these things that are very tyrannical, guess what? God has a way of making them flee. Of making them flee. And God will have that okay so that's the second application again the first one is we need to have loving humility with a fear of god the second one um in light light of his plan second one is also be what be comforted that with the very wicked with these um super wealthy oligarchs they realize god is able to what frustrate them okay frustrate them by the way today's world just so you guys don't think i'm crazy you guys realize some of the super wealthy today even have more money than countries okay when you, when you talk about the Jeff Bezos of this world, the Mark Zuckerberg, they have more money than even some European country. European countries that we call, what, um, first world 
that second world or third world, right? They have that much money, and yet, guess what? They, some of these guys, I think they think of transnational. They're not even thinking about their loyalty to this country. They're thinking, no, we we don't even have to listen to what countries, countries should do the beckoning of us. But realize, be comforted. God has a way of frustrating those who have ambitions of empires. I think also as well, a third application from this is also realize, even when God judges, sometimes... And even when God judges and when God disciplines, keep an eye out for God's grace, okay? Keep an eye out for God's grace, okay? Because God, even in this situation, He could have wiped out everyone because all of us are sinful. He could wipe out you and I. We don't deserve another second, another breath of life, right? Like God gives and God takes away. He does not owe anyone. But also sometimes in the midst of judgment and also discipline, if He disciplines us, please realize, God, look, keep an eye out also for God's mercy, and discipline, okay? Oh, it, it, mercy in His discipline, okay? Sometimes when we're disciplined, we could feel easily in our sinfulness that we want to shake our fist towards God. We think we're given more than what we deserve. But if you keep an eye out for God's mercy in the midst of judgment, after all, here we see God allows this these two classes of individual, the economic class and also the political officials, to escape. That shows what? God's mercy even in the midst of judgment. And by the way, this class, I also think, is complicit with the Syrian Empire. Okay? They are complicit. These are the political class. And yet, God still shows mercy. He does not remove them all uh, with that. Okay? And by the way, I also think even in politics, um, this is my view of foreign policy too, even in terms of war and everything else, you also don't want to remove everybody. Of, uh, let's just say there's wars and when we take over you don't want to you want to move those that make the decision but you don't want to move the whole class of every individual I personally think in the Marines um, the US policy in Iraq was wrong when we took over I actually don't think Iraq the war was right by the way I hope it doesn't burst anyone's bubble okay um, but also I think when they debaffetized the whole thing was every official um, that was in the Baf party which is the party of Saddam Hussein that ends up being what no one the power vacuum and evil people feel that power vacuum. When some of those people, you need to realize, hey, they're the guys that's just running the water, right? They're the water department. But why would you remove them? Then no one does this, and the people suffer. So God here, in the case even of judgment, still show grace, okay? Still show mercy, uh, okay? Um, let's go to point number two. God predicts um, a serious king's demise, okay? Whereas the other ones involve the official, now he, God zooms in, reverse 18 and 19, with the king and his most closest political officials themselves, okay? Verses 18 and 19, really, verse 18 and 19, you're, if you read Bible commentaries, a lot of them say this is a eulogy. It's like there's a, a, an aspect of this is like a song, a dirge for what you sing when someone dies. So there's a prophetic element, but there's a sense where it's also saying, hey, this is certain. And we should be comforted knowing that God goes against those who are the most wicked of the wicked. Okay? This here is in three parts. There's three parts within this point two. Okay? Um, the first part is in verses 18. Hannah, would you be able to come and read for us verses 18? I'll help you out. I think there's some words you might struggle with. But it's worth trying. You want to use your Bible version? Okay. Then I have to look with you because New King James. Okay. Uh, I do not read. Okay. Go ahead. Come here. You want me to come close? Whatever you prefer, my lady. Okay, verse 18. For shepherds, shepherds. shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Assyria. Your nobles. nobles are 
line down your people are scattered on the mountains and there's no one to regret regather them. them. Okay, thank you so much, Rina. Okay. So here we see again God's judgment. Um what I see here in verses eighteen, again the funeral song has three three parts, okay? Um the first part you see that the king's officials are useless. Okay, that they've become useless, okay? Notice it says your shepherds. Um, shepherds is also in Assyria. They like to use that analogy often to say rulers. And those the, that's really close to the kings. These are like the movers and shakers um, within the royal palace, okay? And it's saying they're, what? Sleeping. And by the way, the word your there is masculine singular. I think it's referring to saying, hey, you king, your closest officials, they're all, what? Sleeping. In other words, they are all, what? Useless, okay? We know this is addressing the king because it says, Oh, king of Assyria. By the way, let me ask you real quick. Does any of your version, instead of saying king of Assyria, says king Ashur? A-S-S-H-U-R. I'm just curious. Any Bible, Bible version says that? Okay. I actually think the best way to translate that is not just Assyria. It's actually the king's name himself. King Ashur, okay? King Ashur, which was a king um, in this time period, okay? So it says here, your uh, shepherds are... Asleep, O King Ashur. Your officials are lying down. Your people are scattered in the mountains, and there's no one to gather them. Okay? So, again, there's mentioning of officials, um, two terms as shepherds, and the word officers. And the first one says they're asleep. Okay? They're sleeping. And the second one, um, NSB says lying down. My preferred way of translating things is just they're staying still. They're not moving. They're immobile for whatever reason. Okay? And notice as a result of this, what is the consequence? It says, your people, that is the king's people, are scattered on the mountains. And there's no one to gather them. Okay? No one to gather them. So let me ask you guys this question because attention to details matter. Where are the king's people located at? Are they in Assyria or are they somewhere else according to this verse? Where is this at, guys? Where are they at? Anyone could unmute and speak? They are in the mountains, okay? They're away from Assyria. Again, I actually think, again, God shows grace, even in the midst of this destruction. He didn't just only allow the political class to disappear, like what Kike typed in, is they went to the mountains. They're trying to escape. When the word says they are scattered on the mountains, and it says they're trying to gather them, um, I think the the word gather is a term that's often used um, by the Assyrians to say that they're getting ready for war. So war back then, they didn't fight war 24-7, 365 days of a year. They would coincide this with um, season. Um, the beginning of a war season would often be in the springtime. Okay, In the springtime, you'll gather all their army. There's no snow. The weather is great. Then they'll go march campaign all summer. And then they'll come back uh, during the fall time. And winter time, the army would rest. And then they'll begin another season again. So when they do this, they'll often use this term. As a technical term to say, to begin an army to gather. So I actually think what he's saying here, where the term gather, is not saying he's trying to gather to come back to their capital. He's trying to say, hey, let's, it's our annual um, time for war again. It's our time to go to war, to gather the people, to gather, to go and conscript men and, and say, you now have to go serve in the army. But guess what happened? Are the royal officials doing this? No, there's no army gathered in other words what is predicted here is not only the king's closest officials are useless but the consequence of this is there would not be an invading army anymore and you know what's fascinating 
In 639 BC, the Assyrians suddenly, for whatever reason, in their record, suddenly they were not able to gather an army up. They actually have this in their uh, records, according to Bible commentaries, um, where they, they the king Ashur actually asked for an army, his officials, hey, let's gather an army. And for whatever reason, they were not able to gather people. And I think this is where people are fleeing. People are fleeing and not being forced to do this. They're running away, so to speak, okay? They no longer want to be drafted for war. And we see this in the archives, that this actually got fulfilled. That their officials, for whatever reason, are also afraid, okay? Uh, and wouldn't we want this right now? I don't know about you. Wouldn't we want this right now? At least for me, I would like to see this with Russia where, man, there will be no more um, conscripting young men that have to be forced to go um, to war where people are now fleeing, going out to the countryside, and their officials suddenly says, I don't want to do this anymore, and they're frozen by um, ability to no longer respond to a tyrant. Okay? This is what we see with this passage here. Okay? Um, and according also as well to Babylonian Chronicles, um, the when when the Babylonians are the one that finally came with an army to destroy Nineveh, when they came, they also, in the records, also show that they... Their army, a lot of their officials also ran away, okay, ran away um, to flee from the mountains. And by the way, in wartime, it's some, sometimes the safest place is to have the highest ground, okay? Um, some of you guys perhaps play paintball, right? For, when we usually do this with bachelor parties, um, you guys remember for Ben Chung's, right? Um, I love playing with you guys because I like planning things, right? I, I feel like I'm dreaming of my old days of being a Marine Sergeant again, right? But if you guys remember, like, I thought our team did really well. Like we, we wiped everyone out in seconds, but the only time it didn't was when we did what? When Ben and like he picked like three guys and everyone else was uphill, right? It was like, man, no matter what, like we couldn't take them because what? It was uphill. They had the advantage, right? They had the advantage. So I bring this up and say they, they would make sense why they would flee to the mountains, okay? And then you see a second consequence. The king's death is predicted. The king's death is predicted in verses 19, the first half of verse 19, Okay, first half of verse 19. Uh, Abigail, could you read again for us uh, verses 19? Abigail, come on, please read. Thank you so much, my lady. Verses 19. Nahum 319, you want to come closer so people can hear? Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hears news of you will clap their hands over you for upon... Whom has not your work in this past continually? Okay, thank you so much, Rinas. Okay, so I'm going to pick up the pace of it. I know we're about to end soon. Verses eight, uh, 19, the first part predicts his death, where it says, There's re no relief for your collapse. Your wound is incurable. Okay, it's predicting really the end of the Assyrian, not just one king, but a dynasty is going to be over. Okay, and notice the reaction. From the people. Usually king's death, people cry, okay? But if you guys notice in verses uh, 19, second half, this is what it says, okay? Um, this is what it says. All who hears about you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom your evil uh, not uh, will not... Uh, you, who, correction, let me read this. For upon whom has your evil have not come continually. They're going to be what? Celebrating, okay? Um, why? Because of... The reason why is given in the very end it says, "Hey, those that the king has made suffered evil for those people, they're going to be what grateful that this will be no more." Okay, those will be no more. Um, and I think sometimes for us in the West, this is kind of hard for us to imagine. We can almost feel like it's shocking. But have you ever been under 
in any reign of anyone that is very tyrannical, you people could even have this a little bit more. Now, I'm going to use this analogy, not to say it's right, but I remember when I was in Iraq, the everyday people know the news better than us Marines because we don't have, back then, at least back then, we didn't have cell phones and stuff like that. And this was like 2003, and I remember there was one night, um, I was just on guard duty looking out, and I saw, whoa, the whole city open up in fire. But then I started noticing, because all the radio was like, oh no, we're under fire. Then we realized, hey, we were not under fire. What actually was going on is they're shooting rounds to celebrate. And we did not know for a whole hour until later on, an hour later in the Marines, someone got on the radio and found out. I was like, oh, we asked somebody. They're shooting because they're celebrating the death of Saddam Hussein's two sons. And I lived in the, in Iraq. I was in the southern part of Iraq, which you guys know, the Shiites, they were persecuted by Saddam. They gassed them. They used, you know, biological chemical weapons on them. They killed them and else. So then for them to hear the death of two evil men that suffered their people including the town we were at was gassed before previously and also it's like oh okay i could understand man if you're if you have entire family wiped out okay wow you know i can't relate but man okay if you share the story i could okay that's when i realized in iraq like man if they really want to get rid of us they would have no no one's that strong enough right they, they really would have now I, I do think we will overwelcome our stay okay i'm not like justifying imperialism and that kind of thing what we see here in this case, when you celebrate, when evil people, think about the same thing, maybe close analogies, World War II, when Hitler was gone. I mean, the world celebrated, okay? Um, the world celebrated. Um, so I think when you see this, it's not because of the love of violence, but there's a place, I think, of laughter and tears and also of justice also as well. And you see this response, and these things actually were fulfilled to the T with this. Now, in ending all of this, don't forget God's mercy shown to the business class, even some of the lower official political class, and also as well, who else? Even also as well, the people, ordinary folks. This prophecy gets fulfilled? Yes. Nineveh, for a long time, they could not find where Nineveh was at. It was destroyed that completely until archaeologists in the 1800s suddenly discover Nineveh. Okay? But just because Nineveh is destroyed, does that mean there's no Assyrians? No. There are Assyrians today, okay? Um, some of you guys into apologetics might know a guy named Sam Shimon. Now, I think he's a little maybe theologically unstable, but he is ethnically an Assyrian, all right? Okay, so there are Assyrians, but without Nineveh. And I think this prophecy got fulfilled to the T, where the capital was destroyed and there was no more. It was wiped out, it was burned, and there was water damages with that. All of that fulfilled to the T. But when God's word also says, hey, not all Assyrians are going to be wiped out. Do we have Assyrians today? Yes, there are ethnic Assyrians today. Okay? So it thus shows the power of God's word being fulfilled. And hopefully that would encourage us and foster our desire to have confidence in the authority of Christ. Again, viewing from scriptural lens, but seeing also its fulfillment. I think it's amazing prophecy of this fulfillment. And may we trust in the authority of Christ.